You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Sung death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive led. Christ has risen from death's prison. That's a good entree to the subject we consider today as I'm continuing in messages entitled, After Death, What? I think many of you felt I would plunge right in and be talking about the realities of hell and heaven, which indeed we will talk about in this series. But I'm trying to proceed methodically and I hope somewhat logically as we try to look at a variety of subjects that cluster around this whole topic. And we're considering death itself in the perspective of the Bible. We've looked a little bit at its origin, an Old Testament perspective on that, and the understanding that death came as an alien judgment on sin last time. Today I want to see the first of two times that we would we would say, well, what difference does the gospel make when we talk about death? And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 for a passage that I believe focuses tight on the cross and the death of Christ as an answer to death. And then the next time I'm with you, which will be two weeks from today, we'll look at how the resurrection of Christ uh, counteracts the power of death. Listen to God's Word as I read Hebrews 2, beginning in the middle of verse 8, actually. In putting under Christ... In putting everything under Christ, God left nothing that is not subject to Him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to Him. But we do see Jesus made a little lower than the angels and now crowned with glory and honor because He suffered death so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Then I go down to verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May God help us understand This is his own holy word. There's a secret that you would have to know about me in order to really understand me. A secret you have to know. And here it is. I actually died over 50 years ago. I was a young boy in 1957 
when I die. Now, I assure you, I'm telling you the truth. In the most important possible way, I died 52 years ago. And that has made all the difference in how I continue in this life of mine on earth and how I look forward to the realities of a life beyond this one. If you're confused, I'm only claiming what Paul had said in Galatians chapter 2 when he wrote there, I have been crucified with Christ. So I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But I'm not joking. And I'm not talking about myths or fables or abstract concepts when I tell you that I died 50 years ago. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand the hope that a Christian has in this present life. I really died with Christ on his cross the day I was reborn to put my trust in him and call him my Lord and Savior. Now, Scripture teaches that the very fearsome, the most fearsome aspect of death is the spiritual judgment that it brings, that we, are, we would be cast away from the presence of God. Sometimes the Bible calls this the second death, as if the first death, the physical part, is actually the less fearful. The more fearful part, because it's final and it's absolute, is that second spiritual part in which my soul would be put out from the presence of God. If a person can know that that second death, that spiritual judgment death, has already been dealt with by the cross of Jesus Christ, then you see all that my physical death is going to amount to one day is literally a change in my forwarding address nothing more. Now, our Scripture would imply today that you cannot trust appearances, the appearance of your eyes and your mind as you look at and study our present world society. If you look around and you say, what are the great powers in charge of this world? You might come to say, well, certainly death is in charge. Death is the great reality that nobody can avoid. Death, as we saw last time in Romans 5.14, has a sense in which it reigned over men. It sure seems like death is reigning today. As I looked at the front pages of the newspaper and heard the news reports this week, car wrecks, warfare, plane crashes, famous powerful senator succumbing to brain cancer, death is doing all right in terms of its power. In fact, the one industry, did you ever think about it, the one industry that is absolutely recession-proof, not affected one iota by any recession or depression, with undiminished demand for its services, is the funeral business. And it will always be that way. And we would look around with our eyes and say, well, based on visible appearances, You tell me that the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus were a conquest of death. 
But why is it we're still subjected to death? And why is it that people are so fearful of it still? It seems like it has not submitted at all to the reign of Jesus Christ. Well, that's exactly the concern that this writer to the Hebrews had in mind in Hebrews chapter 2. When he was talking in the early part of chapter 2 about Christ reigning above all, being higher than the angels themselves, he began the thoughts I read for you in verse 8 today saying, this is true, there isn't anything that isn't subjected to him, and yet presently, right now, we don't see it that way. That reign of his, although true, is not completely visible to the human eye. God has left nothing not entirely subjected to Christ, and yet we do not see everything subjected. And so this fear of not only spiritual second ultimate death, but immediate physical death is very real in our world. And indeed, in the cases of unbelievers, they should fear it. They should actually be terrified of the idea that beyond the grave, beyond this life, there will be an experience in which they would be shut out from the presence of God. We'll talk about that judgment more in coming weeks. But the Christian, who under the mercy of God and by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ has been put in a new position for whom that second death, that spiritual death, is already done away with and decided The Christian does not have an unreasonable fear of death, should not, must not, because the worst that death can do to you has already occurred. It has already fallen on the head of Jesus and been worked out there at the cross. Today, as I said in in another message to follow, I want to show you these two foundation stones of the New Testament gospel by which our whole outlook on death is changed. The cross and the resurrection, absolutely fundamental things, but we need to explore them. We find that because Christ sacrificed himself for sin and and died, he conquered death. And then next time, because he rose in Easter victory, his victory over death was very evident and even proved and established in historical terms. And so for the Christian. For those two reasons, the awful devastation of spiritual death has already died. Now, first of all, I'd have you look at verses 2, 8, and 9 of Hebrews here. And here's the point I want you to take from this, to see that to encounter death head-on was the reason God's Son was born in flesh. To encounter death head-on is the reason He was born in flesh. You might remember the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, who sang a, a song of thanks to God, a prophetic song that's recorded in the first chapter of Luke. And one of the things Zechariah said in Luke 1, 78 and following in his song was to tell God that this birth, the, the birth of the Messiah that was, he believed he would now see soon, It was like the rising sun from heaven shining on those who lived in darkness and in the shadow of death. The shadow of death was deep on mankind before Jesus Christ came. And people wondered, did God know how much we live in that shadow and how much we fear what comes after our bodies would expire? 
you know that the Greeks, of course, invented a whole pantheon of mythical gods and goddesses. Maybe we think that when people have a, an array of gods that aren't really gods, of course, that they always have the same concepts of their gods, that their gods are loving and caring. Well, not the Greeks. The Greeks, in, in creating Zeus and Hera and all these different gods and goddesses, said that all of these fictional mythical beings had one characteristic, which in their language they said the characteristic was called apatheia. You can guess what that is. Apathy. In other words, the gods did not care about the concerns of men. They lived in a realm apart. They cared only about one another. They were not the least bit sympathetic nor interested in helping the world of men. They existed only as uh, more or less ideals, I guess you would say, by which men might aspire to or learn lessons from them. But they sure didn't care. They didn't have mercy or love for mankind. They were apathetic. Well, not so the true God of the Bible. Isn't that right? Jehovah God of Scripture both cares about the death dilemma, the deep shadow of death that humanity lives under, and did something about it. Our God acted to enter into humanity in the second person of the Godhead so that Jesus, the preexisting Son of the Highest, as He's called, He's named the Morning Star, the Son of the Dawn. He has so many wonderful names. Christ, the second person of the Godhead, condescended to be born as a baby, come into flesh, and yet not cease to be God in that marvelous mystery. And to encounter human death was his number one goal. Now, Christians, as they've tried to work out theology over the centuries since the time of Christ, have, of course, argued back and forth about the the person of Christ. He's divine, but he's human. How does that balance work out, you know? And and different people work the, the doctrine, and some have the divine part heavy in the scales, another have the human part. One group that emphasized the divine part in too great a way, a way that wasn't even biblical, were called docetists. Docetism, as it was in the early centuries of the church, was that doctrine that said Christ was so divine, he was, he was like a phantom spirit. And yes, he was visible in this world, he walked in this world, but he wasn't a man like I am. If you cut him, he wouldn't bleed. He couldn't, as God, you see, really enter in in the idea the Docetus had. He was play-acting. He was in appearance. He was here, but not really here. Now, this Docetic concept is certainly denied in many texts of Scripture, and Hebrews 2 is one of those places that emphasizes Christ entering into the, the flesh and the nature of human beings to suffer death, to not just sentimentally say, well, I care, well, I'm interested that you suffer, but to suffer himself, to come in flesh and blood and face, not, not some, you know, nice peaceful death. Socrates had a fairly peaceful death as he drank the cup of hemlock and was poisoned and I guess just sank back on his couch and died. Jesus had a horrible death. A worse death physically than almost any of us would ever have to face, no matter what kind of painful disease, because 
thank God today we have morphine and, and things to keep us from usually experiencing the worst pain of death. But Jesus had to come and without morphia or without any sedative face the most protracted, cruel kind of death. He faced the essence of physical death as a man. And it was in pur- on purpose by becoming a man capable of death that he came to earth. Not, not as though death was something incidental. It was the central purpose. It was why he came. So that he, our text is going to imply, could face off as a combatant with the king of death on his own home turf and win that particular victory. You sense as you read about Jesus in the four Gospels, various places where he had this private agenda in his head that was growing in awareness throughout the public ministry. People would say, well, Jesus, we have to go over here and minister to this town or do this. They were always trying to program his day for him. And he would say, no, no, we have to go here. And nobody would understand why. Or he would turn in a completely odd direction. And it seemed that he had a knowledge in and of himself that he had to keep moving toward that cross and that there was a timetable. There was a particular time that would be right for that to occur and he couldn't have it occur any sooner. Along those lines in John 10, he said one time, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord as if his whole agenda The whole reason he was born was to proceed on this schedule that would have him arrive at the cross and as a volunteer lay down his life and meet death in a historic appointment. And so Hebrews 2.9 here says importantly, by the grace of God, God was doing it, Christ tasted death for everyone. This came from God's grace. God's unmerited favor led to this. Every Christian learns that the eternal condemnation of death that we deserve, we don't receive. And the salvation that we do receive in Christ, we don't deserve. That's grace. That's grace. It can only come from grace. Some are confused as they read this text and the curious verb that's used there saying he tasted death. It, it implies, certainly, if you just take a little taste of, you know, I was at a restaurant where they were bragging about their creamed spinach, and they seemed to have creamed spinach with every dish, and I wanted a particular dish, but it had creamed spinach. I said, is there any way I could get some other, vegetable? oh, no, she said, you'll love creamed spinach. Just taste it. I said, no, I won't even taste it. I won't. Well, to hear that Christ tasted death makes it sound like he just dabbled in it, right? We know that that isn't the case. It's an expression here that does not mean an experimental tryout. Christ plunged headfirst into death. He was slow roasted in death in the curse of sin and the cruelty of mankind, even though he had no sin that would ordinarily be punished by death. To encounter death head-on was why the Son of God became a man. Don't ever forget that. 
to encounter death head-on was why God's Son was born in flesh. John Owen the Puritan said it this way, the first and principal end of the Lord Christ's assuming human nature was not to reign in it, but to suffer and die in it. Now, secondly, if we jump to Hebrews 2.14, and I'm not implying that the material between there, 10 to 13, is unimportant, but I wanted to just condense the text a bit this morning. Hebrews 2.14 teaches us this, that to destroy death's sword of judgment was Christ's whole aim at the cross. He had a goal, and it was to take the sword of death and shatter it. Now, there are various ways in which we can talk about what we call the atonement. The word atonement applies to, to everything Christ did on his cross, everything he accomplished, particularly what he accomplished to do away with sin and its effects. And there are many ways to describe the atonement. It's like a, a great, huge diamond with many facets to it. And you can look at different facets, and there are a whole set of them that, that deal with how he satisfied various requirements. When we talk about those satisfaction parts of the atonement, we're talking about the ransom of the cross or the redemption of the cross. A very significant facet of the atonement is when we call Jesus a substitutionary sacrifice. All these things are important in in thinking of the atonement. They describe how it was he created the possibility that men and women could be justified before God. So I don't take away any of those important facets, but Hebrews 2, 14 and following here, speak about another facet of the atonement that is not as often emphasized. And this is what we might call the conquest element. Some call it Christ the victor. The idea that there was actually a battle, a conflict, a militaristic fight going on at the cross. And that actually was predicted all the way back in the first prophecy of the whole Bible in Genesis 3.15, when it was predicted that the one who would be called seed of the woman, Christ, would have his heel bruised by Satan, but that he would crush the serpent's head. Amazing prophecy way back there in Genesis 3 that we know came true at the cross. Jesus was bruised. He, my goodness, bruised. It would seem a lot more than a bruise that he suffered at the cross. But in the ultimate sense, it wasn't more than that. And it was Satan whose head was crushed. The emphasis here is that it's as if two great champions like David and Goliath squared off against each other. One of them appeared to be the victim. One of them was, was spread-eagled on a a wooden beam, and nailed there, and suffered, and and appeared to be absolutely powerless. He was mocked by people. Oh, you think you're so great. Do something to help yourself. And they poured abuse on Jesus, you remember. They spit on him. But by the very nature of his power as God in flesh, that utter weakness of his human suffering, and even his physical dying, could not conquer him. There's a great verse in Acts 2.24 that says it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? Because he was God. 
He could die because he was a man. Could he stay dead? No, he could not stay dead because he was God. And we'll look another time at the resurrection itself. It may seem like I should be talking about resurrection today. But the focus here in this text is just on the cross and this conquest of death at the cross. And the Bible claims that Jesus' death was the ironic means of God's overthrowing the reign of death. That whole spiritual aspect of death was met and defeated in the victory of Christ. Hebrews 2.10, in the midst there of the passage part I didn't read, calls Christ the author of our salvation. There's a word repeated there several times in Hebrews. The word it's translated author there. It can also mean champion. You think of Christ as like an army commando, a ranger commando or a Navy SEAL, someone who's sent in on a mission to go and and clear out some kind of difficult enemy opposition, to use stealth, to use superior training and, and powers to go and confront the enemy and clear out a path so then the rest of the troops can come along and perhaps have an easier uh, path to victory. Well, Jesus announced what he was doing at the cross, even in his ministry time. And in a passage that some people don't understand, in Luke eleven twenty one and following, he said this. It was prophetic about the cross. Jesus said, when a strong man who is fully armed guards his house, his possessions are safe. But if someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and then divides up the spoils of his house. Jesus was predicting what he would do on the cross. The strong man he was talking about there was Satan, depicted as a a reigning king with subjects under him, the souls of men and women. And Jesus depicted himself as the stronger man who would come and break open that dominion and lead souls out of the stronghold of death. You may remember when we studied Colossians not so long ago, a ringing verse, Colossians 2.15 said that Christ disarmed powers and authorities, spiritual powers, including Satan. He made a public spectacle out of them, triumphing over them in the cross, said Colossians 2.15. No wonder we now come to Hebrews 2.14 and read that Christ in his death destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. That was a decisive destruction. The life that could not be put out permanently would rise up again, and the resurrection only proved who won the battle as Christ, the victim, became the victor won a victory that his people can share in. Now, lastly today, this text that we've read, especially in verses 15 through 18, says one more thing. It tells of a purpose, of an accomplishment or an application, if you will, of this victory that Jesus had at the cross. And I'll say it this way. It was to quiet the death fears of believers that Jesus presently became our high priest. You see, even knowing everything that happened at the cross and the resurrection and everything else, even knowing that that Christ removed the power of that second death that would condemn us in eternity, 
even knowing that, we who are God's adopted children in Christ can still certainly have qualms and fears about the experience of physical death. And in one sense, who am I to speak of it? Here I am in relative good health. You know someone, perhaps, who's very close to death, who perhaps is in hospice care. And so it's even beneficially said that the medical establishment is not seeking to actively make them better, but is recognizing that death is going to come and is just keeping them comfortable. Who are we who are still healthy to say somebody shouldn't be afraid when death is really right there, almost at the door? And yet it isn't complete arrogance to say that. Because even though we grieve about those who are taken from us and accidents and disease and and all the sadness we can think of that clings to death, we in our fears of death have one who comforts and one who stands by to encourage us even in the face of death. A semi-humorous way to look at this, I would call it gallows humor, is the filmmaker Woody Allen. I don't know if you ever follow Woody Allen's movies. He's obsessed with death. All of Woody Allen's movies deal with death in some manner. He's not a believer in Christ, and he always is discussing it. And in one of his movies, a line that's always stuck with me was when Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of dying so much. I just don't want to be there when it happens to me. Well, can't we identify with that? You know, we can say, well, sure, the eternal part is settled, and, and I know that, that death and the grave and my funeral are, are not really going to wipe me out, and yet I sure don't want to go through that. But we all will. Christ was teaching us here that a scorpion bites once and injects all its poison into one victim, and that happened when he went to the cross. The eternal sting, the eternal condemnation, the second death, the spiritual part of death was injected into Jesus Christ on behalf of every man, woman, boy, and girl who accepts and trusts in his victory. And so the second death won't be faced by us. Only that first part. It's fearful. Yes, it is. I can't tell you there's nothing fearful about it. But I can tell you what Hebrews 2 says. You have the unique, sympathizing heart of a Savior, a God who came to earth, the Son of God who became man, who experienced this, who went through it, who knew the worst of it. And he says, trust me. Be encouraged. Hebrews 2.15 says he died, quote, to free those who all their life long are held in slavery by the fear of death. Why should you continue to be held in slavery of fear to something Jesus conquered? And who but he will hear our cries and understand our fears and be, as verse 18 says here, able to help us in such fears. It was to make him our great high priest that he ultimately died. John Calvin wrote about this, although he said, Although we must still meet death in the body, let us believers nevertheless be calm and serene in our living and our dying. And Calvin reminded, too, that 
Nothing in the entire universe, it says Romans 8, can possibly separate a Christian from the one who loved us and gave himself for us. You see, Christian, if you give way to a morbid, overpowering, trembling fear of death, what you're actually doing is standing in a jail cell for which Jesus has broken the lock. You have no reason to be in that jail cell. The door's unlocked, and he bids you come out and not languish there in trembling fear. I wasn't kidding when I began this morning by claiming to you that I died along with Christ as a boy 52 years ago. I wasn't kidding. That really happened. And I know it's really happened for many, many of you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.11, if we died with him, and we already have, we shall also live with him. And that's the promise that we wait to claim fully. There was a man in early church history with an odd name, a Latin name, John Chrysostom, was an early Christian pastor and theologian a long time ago. He lived from 350 to 400 A.D., only a couple of centuries after the time of Christ. The church was in its early stages, and Chrysostom, as a pastor, observed something when he would have funerals at his church. He observed Christian believers coming and and wailing and mourning at funerals, and he realized this was wrong, and so he got up to his pulpit and, and exhorted the people. And John Chrysostom said, why all this crying and groaning? What could be more unseemly than for loved ones of a man who has been crucified to this world and risen with Christ than to wail in the presence of his death? He said, those who are truly worthy of being lamented are those still living in fear who must tremble before death, for they have no sure faith in a victory of Christ or of resurrection. And maybe you've heard the words Chrysostom concluded with, but they always ring wonderfully to me when he formed them as a prayer or as an exhortation that is also my prayer for you. This ancient man of God said to his people, may you all die unwailed. May you die unwailed. Because in Christ, you're the victor along with him. And our Father, this is our prayer, that we might in this life discover your wonderful, amazing death, victory over Satan, and the power of your resurrection. And in those things know that the eternal dimension of death cannot touch us. So, Father, may our gospel go forward and May your truth set itself and take root securely in many believing people so they too may die unwailed for Jesus' sake. Amen.